Thank you so much for that worship uh, experience, Mark. And uh, once again, happy Father's Day and welcome to a very unique uh, Bridge Church service. Uh, we thought in light of um, just what's happening in our country and even the, the three heavy sermons that we just went through with the stories that we tell, that would be a good time to process. Uh, our lead pastor, James, is on a much needed sabbatical. And so uh, we are here in this moment to just kind of process and reflect. So I'd like to introduce you to uh, those who are going to be having this discussion with us. Uh, we have Lord S. Branch, the co-host of City Image Podcast, as well as an educator in a charter school in New York City. And then we have Steve Cancer, one of the elders of our church, as well as a director of a church planning network here in the city. Now, I'm glad that you guys are able to join yeah, us today. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm so glad to be able to talk to you and just kind of get your thoughts on just what's been going on in our country and just even through these messages. Um, so a friend of mine recently defined uh, racism this way. His name is Timotheus Pope. He says, racism is partiality backed by law, promoted by narrative, reinforced by story, and disregarded in history. Now, Pastor James referred to racism in his sermon last Sunday in spiritual terms, and he quoted this scripture from 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now, the Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, racism, Pastor James referred to as a doctrine of demons. How does seeing racism in spiritual terms kind of as something that's entrenched in our culture impact the way we see the problem? You want to go first? Yeah, I, I, I will take that. I'll start <laughs> off. Um, I think for myself as a black woman, um, just understanding that racism is spiritual, it it makes me feel less crazy. Like it, 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 it validates in a sense of like, oh, this is actually a great evil. Like there's actually something wrong here. Um, and I think for myself, like being able to process the trauma that comes along right. with experiencing racism is just like, this is this is wrong. This is evil. Like this is mm. like I'm not making it up when yes. I'm, you know, I'm hurt if someone is following me when I'm walking in a store or mm. or that I'm I'm it hurts when you, you know, call the police and I'm just living. Like there, there's there's something sinister behind it. Mm. So even explaining it in spiritual terms, it it gives more truth and more validity to my experience. Right. That's mm. good. Yeah, I you know, in the question you asked, there's this assumption that culture understands that there's racism in, in their community, in their society. Um, for my black and brown friends, it's not a question of whether it exists, but for a lot of people that look like me that are white, they, they question that this is really an issue of, of America today, that it's really an issue in our churches or in our workplaces. Mm -hmm. And that just keeps perpetuating um, the, the sin. And no other sin does the church look at as racism? Mm -hmm. Anything else? You know, I think James mentioned uh, um, a sex sin. They would they would want to take care of it right now. Right. You know, that would be addressed. Yet they would put a man and a woman, two two slaves together, mm -hmm. for the purpose of their own good and, and raising their you know getting uh, more more slave work. Mm -hmm. 
but no other sin do we treat that way. Yeah. Uh, like like racism, anything else, we would just put a knife in it. Mm. And um, but for some reason, we just ignore that it exists. Yeah, that's so true. And one of the things that uh, Pastor James talked about in the series is he kind of identified four different types of responses to racism that we often see in our culture. Um, I want to just focus on the first three that he talked about and kind of get your perspective on that. The first he refers to is just an, an actual racist response, believing the, the lie, believing the doctrine of demon, right? That there is this inferiority that black and brown people have to the standard of whiteness. A second is racially indifferent. This perspective says race is a non-factor in our society. Oftentimes people will say, I'm colorblind, right? I don't see color. Um, and that only the, the only disparities that we see that exist are indications of personal behavior. The third is the racial reconciler. This is someone who might say, okay, yeah, we need to uh, work in harmony, but the goal is interpersonal relationships and, and that they envision to see the big problem is we just need to be in the same space at the same time and work through things. How have you experienced these three different stories about race uh, in our country? <laughs> I bet my story is a lot different than <laughs> yours, too. Oh, yeah. Um, and they can be the same person. Mm. All three mindsets can show up in the same person mm. in the same time. Like, if you put that person in a different context, they might be blatantly racist. They might be, you know, racially indifferent, or they might be the racial reconciler, depending on who is around them. Wow. And that has been my experience where, you know, I've had... Um, white counterparts who have said, who've made comments to me that in the presence of mm -hmm. a white person, they wouldn't say. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, your eyebrows are on fleek, girl. <laughs> <laughs> friend, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that to me. You, yeah. if you wouldn't say that to your white friend. Like, why, why do you feel the need to say that to me? I think also professionally, like I've had moments where I've said things to white women and they took offense to what I said. But it's like if my white male principal has said it to you, you would not be offended in my saying it. It's like now because a black woman is saying it, it comes off as aggressive. Yeah. Or I've heard the I don't I mean, I'm I just I just don't see race. Like I just don't even see why we have to talk about it. Like why like like Girl, because it's my whole whole being. Like, you know, like if you aren't acknowledging my physicality, it's like you, there's a whole aspect of me that you don't see. So I think my experience is like being around the same person and then having different contexts with them and having them act either blatantly racist, you know, racially indifferent, or just the racial reconciler. That's kind of convicting what you said about the same person can navigate depending on the audience. And it makes me reflect, like, where have I done that? Because I know I have. Not that I've said your <laughs> eyebrows are on fleek or anything, but, you know, in other ways, jokes that I would would listen to in one audience right. and uh, versus another audience. And that's, man, that's that's just so convicting to think that we can move in, out of, move in and out of those different spheres. My, my story is a little bit different, and I, I grew up... Um, in, in a very poor community early on while my dad was in college. I remember going to my dad's college graduation. And we lived in what would have been, you know, the projects in Cincinnati. And I went to school my first two or three, first three years, I think I'm second grade. I was one of about three uh, white kids in the class. Um, my first and second grade teacher were African-American women in the day when you were allowed to spank. Uh, your students, which was not good. Uh, they did, and I got one. Um, but so, you know, 
I'd always been around different cultures and um, and people of color, but so that, that that impacted and influenced me. And I never really experienced like personally one on one somebody's just anti, you know, just a just a racist. Excuse me, flat out racist. Uh, I've seen it on video. I've read articles. I know they're there. I don't deny it. It's just I hadn't been around it. Um, but God did something to me when I was in Atlanta. We moved to Atlanta, and I was working at an organization, and met a guy named Dahadi, Dahadi Lewis, a great friend of mine, and was my pastor for a while. But I met him, and he was starting a new church in Atlanta called Blueprint. And uh, me and my family, we went to just check it out. I loved visiting church plants, a predominantly black church. And uh, a guy named John O was preaching that, that day. And John O, I mean, it's just incredible. If you've ever heard John O preach, I mean, he's a now pastoring Cornerstone, I yep. think, Cornerstone yep. Church. Yeah. Just an incredible, incredible word from God. And I heard him preach this message, and I thought, I, I turned to my wife and said, that was one of the best messages I ever heard. But in my mind, the next thought that I had was, and that was a black man. Mm. And I just remember in that moment, so for a guy who felt like, you know, I was pretty exposed and I didn't have these feelings. I realized oh, that that's a sin. Yeah, that's terrible. And that's not one of those things. Oh, God, transform me, make me better. No, that's God put a knife in that and kill that. Yeah. And that was helped me and my family to say, OK, me leading my family, like, man, I need to get into the culture more. I need to surround myself more with uh, people of different races, colors and languages so that I can see the beauty of God's creation. So. Absolutely. And also similar to add on to that of like you where you were socialized around people of color but still had this, yeah. you know, this dark sinister thing inside right. of you. Like it's not just oh let's come together and let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Like there there is something deeper and there's something more. Like I remember I went to college in good old Petersburg, Virginia, and <laughs> if you know anything mm -hmm. about Petersburg, Virginia, it is as segregated as you can get wow. to this day. Like it is you know, a, a Civil War battle site. Like, our college was actually built on a Civil War battle site. And there's also a Confederate flag museum in the town yeah. of Petersburg. Mm. Um, the Commonwealth is as blatantly racist as you can get. And I remember the experiences of driving through certain parts of Petersburg, and there are actually nooses hanging from people's mm. yards. But those same people attended Virginia State University. Like, because it was the premier college in the area, like, you, you probably got a scholarship to come here because you are white and you are in the minority at an HBCU, wow. but you go home to a house that has a noose in your yard, mm. or you go with your family to the Confederate Flag Museum, mm. or you work for the carpentry company that comes on our campus and on your flag, on the truck, the flag on your truck is the Confederate flag, but you are in class with your black classmates. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. we kicking it with Jimmy. Like we, <laughs> Jimmy's a part of, you know, he in the clique. But Jimmy Auntie works at the Confederate Flag Museum. Wow. So it really is like something far deeper than let's just have a conversation of being the same. Oh, yeah. And, and that's why I think all of those three categories, I loved how you said that, Lordess, that we can have aspects of them in the same person. And mm -hmm. I say we because, you know, that internalized uh, racism or self-hate you know, that was kind of probably best typified in the doll experiment that, mm -hmm. you know, we saw in Brown versus Board of Education, where black children would select the white doll as mm -hmm. more attractive and smarter and even morally good versus bad. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a work that needs to happen 
in addition to this indifference and in addition to the aspect that somehow this is only just an interpersonal thing. Like these are systems that need yeah. to uh, be dismantled and destroyed. And in fact, uh, one of the things that uh, Pastor James uh, pointed out is he referenced Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. I want to get you guys thoughts on this. And I, Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, this was the second sermon in his series. Uh, it reads, is not this the fast I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And so this led uh, Pastor James to talk about the fourth category, right? So not the racist, not the racially indifferent, not the racial reconciler, but the anti-racist. And the anti-racist he described as someone who understands the historical, historical origins of disparities, is concerned about current policies that shape those disparities in the present, committed to advancing the black community in light of those disparities and sees those disparities as unjust. I wanna ask you too, how has your faith been informed by the way of thinking about this work of being anti-racist? I think personally, um, I just love how Pastor James broke down the historical implications of like, this is not brand new. Like it didn't start from anywhere. Like being able to understand the history of America, like why it is today, um, that has definitely informed a lot of my thinking because I, I think in some, and sometimes we'll have a blind faith where it's like, oh, you know, if we just pray, if we just believe, like everything will be okay. If you don't understand where it came from, like how do you know what you're addressing? Yeah. Like if you don't know that in New York, New York City actually has the most segregated school system in the United States. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. New York is one of the most democratic states in our country, but it is far more racially segregated and far more economically segregated mm -hmm. than any other school mm -hmm. district in the United States. And that that's purposeful. That was yeah. that was with intention that, you know, when the South was blatantly trying to segregate schools and, and blatantly trying to block, you know, black children from attending schools or white children. New York City was doing it in this veiled kind of way with this language of, oh, zoning yeah. or, you know, oh, let's let's go to, you know, let's make sure we have our neighborhood schools yeah. like they You know, it was more of a veiled racism. But if you don't understand that and you're trying to go out and fix the system, hmm. you know, when you're operating like you can operate from a place of misinformation yeah. and, and be addressing the wrong thing if you don't know that there is actually like practical racial steps that caused the school to be here. So like, yes, you you have to believe and you have to trust in God, but you also have to have an understanding of how we got here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, people from outside the city, they always ask me, oh, what's it like living in such a diverse city and stuff? And I always tell them, I said, this is a diverse city made up of a bunch of segregated neighborhoods, mm -hmm. right? So when as a whole, yes, it's diverse, but you could really get within a few blocks and live life there and uh, be pretty pretty segregated yeah. so yeah it's different um for for me you know the this this idea how it's impacted my faith is um man I'm, I'm, i've been trying to rally my family around this this idea that, that did something to me when when i thought that of john o uh in his preaching because i knew that there was something in me that that was wrong sinful mm -hmm. 
And I was worried that my daughters were going to be exposed mm-hmm. to that same thing. Mm-hmm. And I know I needed to clean. Mm-hmm. I needed God to, to kill that in my life as well. And then you take that. And then when we moved to Atlanta, my uh, my oldest daughter, she's kind of a prophet in my life. There's several stories I could tell you where she's kind of called me out or spoken a word of truth. We went to a park and a Stone Mountain Park in, outside of Atlanta. And it's this huge piece of granite. But on it's carved has carved these generals from the Confederate War. And we're having a picnic right underneath this park on Martin Luther King weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like our first, second weekend in Atlanta. And uh, my daughter looks at that and she asks, who are they? We're like, oh, they were generals in the Confederate War or in the Civil War on the Confederate side. And she's like, like on the side that had slaves? And I'm like, yeah. And she's, it just, she's like, why would they put our fiercest enemy mm-hmm. on a mountain? Wow. So I'm like enjoying a Martin Luther King picnic with my family in the shadow of this. And I'm OK with that. And it took the voice of, you know, my daughter to see that and like, well, this is this is wrong. This is wrong. And, and I think until we're not exposed to things that are wrong, our, our faith um, is going to be so limited because we're only going to see it from our cultural perspective. Right. And by being able to sit in brown and black churches and stuff, I, I, I realize what are parts of my faith that are really tied to biblical truths mm. and what are parts of my faith that are tied to my cultural context. And I, this stuff I can shed. Some of it I have to shed. So I'm going to just hold open-handed. It's important or not. But this part I can't. I have mm. to hold on to that biblical truth part. Wow. Well, we're here, uh, especially this moment, this cultural moment, which has been um, really the sustained weeks of of protests, of transformation that we've seen. Uh, Really, the catalyst was we could go back to Ahmaud Arbery. We can go back to Breonna Taylor and so many other black women whose stories oftentimes uh, get overlooked. Um, And then specifically and explicitly George Floyd's uh, you know, murder on uh, Memorial Day um, has kind of led us to this moment of, of, of unrest and, and really transformation. Um, and this pattern of uh, police killing of unarmed black people has kind of really placed us in the spotlight. So I, I want to turn the attention to criminal justice mm-hmm. uh, and Lord S in particular. How have you seen these racial and economic disparities um, in our nation play themselves out specifically in the criminal justice system? Yeah, I think I, I have a lot of personal anecdotes um, with that. Uh, for myself, I, I like to say I'm a product of Reaganomics. You know, Jay-Z said it like raising the projects, roaches and rats like that is a real thing. Um, so I immigrated to this country with my family and you know, we lived in the projects of Brooklyn And just being in that environment and you trying to figure out, navigate a country that you have no idea, you know, how it works. You know, there are all these outside influences of you get involved with criminality. But you you notice, like, there's a lot of police presence Mm -hmm. out here. Like Mm -hmm. there, you know, why are there so many cop cars? Why do we have, you know, the the police towers? Like why? That was just something I noticed. Like there's always police around in, in, in this area that we grew up in. And, you know, my older brother being involved, like he's he's a man of the house. He's like trying to, you know, make ends meet for the house. Like he got, you know, caught up in, you know, doing things that he was not supposed to, you know, um, hanging with the wrong crowd. Um, but because of the, you know, Giuliani's law and order and those enactments of like three strikes and you're 
out, like he, you know, um, got caught up in the system and on his his arrest, um, his final arrest, like the police officers broke into our home and basically assaulted him to to transport him out. Um, And the, you know, the arresting officers, they wrote, you know, about his arrest and they wrote doctored this uh, police report that said that our home was a risk, that there were, you know, several family members in the house and they were threatening. So they wrote the report in a sense to make it look like we were, you know, somehow attacking the police. And it was just like, sorry, I'm 11. (laughs) What what police am I attacking, sir? Like, what? what? Um, So, yeah. And and also, you know, my brother, he uh, received a 30 year sentence for a crime that, you know, should never have even gotten that that number of sentences because the three strikes are out. Um, and just in the course of him being in prison, he has a, suffered tremendous police brutality. Like, um, you know, Pastor James shared the story of Emmett Till, where his mother, you know, wanted an open casket because her son mm-hmm. was unrecognizable because of what these people did, did to her son. The police assaulted my brother and my mother went to see him and she was like, I couldn't recognize my child. Mm-hmm. Like they broke his jaw. You know, it was just all these things. And and they said they were trying to transport him. And what they said was like, if he had just come peacefully, if he didn't resist, then we wouldn't have had to, you know, use force. Force versus assault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's not, you know, yeah. the two just don't yeah. don't align. Mm-hmm. So I. I have a very complicated yeah. opinion of um, the criminal justice system. I do, I do want to give respect to good officers who actually do their jobs and who are there to protect and serve. But I've encountered far too many that are not. So I think the system within itself, hmm. it doesn't really train people to be humane. It doesn't train people to to you know be civil in the way that um, they execute law and order mm-hmm. you, they are trained to excessively use force yeah more like a military right exactly than a, yeah. a police force and, and i think sometimes when in that this conversation about uh police brutality and violence and even just over policing there's oftentimes a almost people forget like you said that the 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 story that's being told in our culture can kind of intermingle with those split second moments and decisions about what I see as dangerous mm-hmm. versus what I see is just what I've been trained to see as dangerous mm-hmm. yeah. just in our culture. So, but in addition to, you know, having that experience um, with criminal justice, you also are an educator. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. We mentioned that earlier mm-hmm. uh, at a charter school. And I know that's one of the other big things that have been um, kind of front and center in this, uh, you know, in this discussion about systemic racism. How have you seen that play itself out in the education system? It's very apparent in that, you know, there's this phrase of like the school to prison pipeline. Like it's true. Like there are certain tests that students have to take um, in the third grade. They take the um, Common Core assessments and based off of your scores on that, those tests, they are building the number of jail seats that oh, wow. they need, that they expect people to have. So if you score below a, a three or, or a certain level on the on the test, they're assuming that by the time you get to high school that you will drop out and you will fall into in criminal. third grade. In third grade. Um, yeah, it's like, yeah, they, they have already, mm-hmm. you know, placed this bondage on a child. Like, and, and it's crazy that the reaction is built, like, not like, let's create some intervention no. that can, it's just, oh, well. Yeah, like, you are going inevitable. to fall into criminal activity wow. and you will will have a, a jail seat for mm-hmm. you waiting when you do. Not if, when you when do. You do. Um, also, I, you know, I work for a school that is in District 19. Um, 
in District 19, 73% of the schools are below proficient in below performance. So if you are in a neighborhood where it's already set up to where you are not going to succeed in school or, or you don't have the resources in your school to succeed, what do you what do you what are you left with? Like there there are no you know social justice move there's there's no council, there's no you know programs in your neighborhood and the school that you go to is already failing. What's your 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 life trajectory supposed to be? Also, uh, you know, there is heavy over-policing in the schools. Um, coming again from Giuliani's law and order, there are random searches that happen in our elementary schools where once a month or, or every so often, they will set up metal detectors where all the students have to walk through the metal detectors in order to get into school. So students are automatically already being criminalized. Like I'm walking through a metal detector, you're searching my belongings. Like I, I'm already put on defensive because I'm tr being treated at 10 years old as a criminal. Yeah, you told me your class is like seven year olds seven. that are walking through. They're, they're seven and they are, you know, they're coming into a building and there are, when they when they send these on um, the searches, there are swarms of police wow. in our lobby. And the kids, you see their face, they all walk in and they're mm -hmm. like, What's happening? And then when we're like walking through the hallway, if they're still there, they are all they get scared yeah. because they're like, "Why are there so many police officers in our building?" But already, <laughs> what do you think is the long term impact, or what have you have you seen any way in which that presence, that posture toward them, has impacted the students? They're already they're terrified. They're like, okay, they they all already know like, okay, what do what am I supposed to do? Like I, I've seen my my students like, you know tense up like are we supposed to keep walking like they they stand and they're stunned they're like do we keep walking do we turn like i don't know what right. to do right now um and they there's just this this narrative that's played in your head of like okay if the police are here what do police come for police come for yeah. criminals mm. they're always at my school they're coming for me i'm a criminal wow so the the narrative just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And like every interaction they have with police mm -hmm. from the time they're seven is negative. It, exactly. I remember talking uh, to a white friend of mine in like college and they were like, yeah, this one time I was just hanging out, you know, and decided to kind of play this joke on this officer. And I was like, play a joke? <laughs> no. I was like, that's a thing? No. Like, because like you said, like my impression was like the, the, the relationship that this was supposed to have with the community was fear-based, not like yeah. collegial. Um, I was, one time I drove from Atlanta to Cincinnati visiting family and um, they may take my eldership away from me when I tell this story, <laughs> but I got two tickets on the mm. way home, like two separate speeding tickets. One was in Tennessee and then one was in Kentucky. And I was just convinced the guy in Kentucky pulled me over because I had out of state plates and knew the ticket was worth more and he came up and he was arrogant. I yelled at him. Mm. I told him to just give me the ticket. He's like, I could have wrote you for more. I was like, well, go back there and write me for more. You know, my girls are asleep in the back. I went off. Oh, you knocking and bucking. Yeah. I, I know now, like, if I was a black man, that I would be on the side of the road. Mm. I would have been ripped out of that car and I would have been on the side of the road. There's yeah. no way that they would have let a black man talk to them mm. in that way. Yeah. And that was a privilege that mm. I had should not have exerted, right. but a privilege that I had where I could 
talk in a very disrespectful way um, because I felt like I was wronged. But see, even in that, like you, it's like who who gets stopped when and why? Mm -hmm. Um, And to, you know, to tie it back to schools, like we have, you know, instance of who gets consequence versus who doesn't Um, and who gets suspended versus who doesn't. And then when there is like a, you know, a breach of behavior, who intervenes and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. So at schools, like very often their disciplinary people are the police. So if you Mm -hmm. uh, have an instance of where black boys and black girls are the ones that are being over-disciplined, they're now having another encounter with Mm -hmm. the police. Like you've seen videos where they've been officers in schools that have, you know, flip children, (laughs) like, you know, bodies slam them. Um, Because they're coming in of like, okay, I have to disarm this child or Mm -hmm. this child is a troublemaker or this child is, you know, a problem. So I have to use force to, you know, stop this child. So even in that, um, if you look at school data, there is, you know, a disproportionate number of black girls that are actually suspended um, than there are any other group of children. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's already this, you know, this narrative of like, okay, this, this girl is a threat. She's a problem. Like she has an attitude. Then after black girls is black boys. Mm. So you constantly see that criminalization of children within mm. schools. Right. Well, to kind of switch gears, um, because, you know, we're seeing how this kind of mm. impacts a lot of different entities and institutions. Uh, Steve, yeah. you, you're, uh, part of your ministry over the years has been with churches, right? Mm-hmm. And with various t- different types of churches, predominantly white, you know, diverse, uh, predominantly black, et cetera. Um, what have you know, because uh, Pastor James talked about the difference between racial uh, racial reconciliation approach versus mm-hmm. the anti-racism approach. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the difference? How, how have you seen the difference between the two and why does that matter? I, it, to me, the difference is activation. I think racial reconciliation, we have the conversation, we talk, we become uh, aware and, you know, we can hug it out and we feel good and, and that uh, anti-racism and anti-racist uh, behaviors when you're like, I'm going to be activated and work against the system mm-hmm. that's corrupt. Yeah. Now I'm going to put th- what I know in, into actions. And, and, and it becomes, you know, you do it at a, a very much at an organizational level as much as you have influence to do so. Right. I love uh, the idea of leading from the second chair, that even when you're not the top leader, you have influence within uh, your, your school, your workplace, your organization. Um, you know, you, so you have to do it at that organization, but you also have to do it at a very personal level mm-hmm. and combat the things, whether it's hearing a friend tell a joke that's inappropriately um, or, 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 you know, seeing somebody being mistreated in the line at a restaurant or something because of their, the color of their skin. What, you know, there's things that I've put into place, like in my personal kind of philosophy of leadership. So I, I oversee a team of about 40 people. And so, you know, there's a lot of transition. I get to hire and, and, and uh, unfortunately sometimes I have to let people go. But, but when I hire, I'm always trying to think, okay, um, we, we need to surround. We got to put at the board boardroom table more people, more men of black and brown, more black and brown men to give us diversity of thought and context and culture. But I also think about my replacement like in every position, I always, I'm always thinking ahead, who's going to replace me? And to me, that's about like, who am I going to surround my dinner table with? Mm-hmm. Who am I going to kind of ri- develop up? And I think we have to take care of it, yes, at the boardroom table, at the 
the institutional organizational level, but we also have to address racism at our dinner table mm. and have diverse relationships around us so I can hear these stories. Like I had no idea about your experiences in the school. And now that makes me look at the school different mm -hmm. every time I, I go. And not in a, you know, obviously some negative things, but in a way that I want to help bring some uh, reconciliation of what is broken in there. Yeah. And you've actually told me that you you have this interesting thing sometimes when, you know, or often or maybe all the time when people come into the city, especially if they're, you know, white, expecting All the white guys planners. want to plant a <laughs> what, what <do> you, <laughs> multi you tell church? them to consider? <laughs> uh, first thing, I, two things. While I'm having a conversation with them, usually on the phone it starts. Uh, I'm looking at their Facebook account, you know, and they're telling me I want to start a uh, you know, a diverse church, a multi-ethnic church. And I'm looking at their Facebook. I'm like, but your friends are all white. It's okay. You know, it's, be white. It's, it's okay. Um, you know, just love, you know, love your neighbors, whoever you're surrounded by. Uh, but but the other thing is, I said, do you really feel called to that? I mean, is that just a, a desire or is that a calling? Because there's a difference. You know, you have a preference, but then you have a something that God is making you do or, you know, pushing you in a direction in. And when they say, no, it's a real calling, I say, well, why don't you consider becoming the second man or becoming on staff at a church that's led by a black or brown guy? Mm. Why don't you go in there? If you really want to have a, be a part of a racially diverse church, submit yourself to black and brown leadership. Mm. And um, I've not had anybody take me up on it yet, mm. but I'm, I'm excited when somebody does and they say, <laughs> I, I will do that. Can you know put aside your desire to be the lead yeah. for the purpose of something greater? Yeah, that's so good. Well, we're wrapping up here. Just um, two more questions. One, like, what are some things that you are doing to be anti-racist? Yeah, I think in my my own life, I've had to really reflect on have I been racially indifferent as a black woman? Like, have I really been actively championing? certain things or have I gotten complacent of like oh this is the way that it, it always has been or always will be I think for myself personally um, as an educator I've had to reflect on my own teaching practice of okay am I over disciplining certain students like am, am I acting out of a bias towards certain students am I you know am I perpetuating negative stereotypes in my disciplinary practices or in my my attitude or my tone towards a child of like I'm, I'm negatively reinforcing a stereotype mm. here if if I yell or if I'm, you know, gruff in a way mm. to a child's like, yeah, I'm perpetuating, you know, stereotypes in that way. So I've had to, like, reflect in my own practice to make sure I'm, I am actively, you know, preserving the Imago day of every person mm. that, I, that I encounter it at all times, especially in, in my teaching practice. Um, also getting involved with Pray March Act. Like the, I know the church is moving towards that as an organization. Like I've been present at protests and wanting to find out more like, okay, what do we do from this moment? Not just, you know, passively sitting on the sidelines. Like I think we are called to pray, but we're also called to act. So then what does that now look like for me? Um, and, and I've had to have some conversations where I've said to, to white counterparts, go read a book. Like I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I can't have, I'm, yeah. I can't have this conversation with you. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not going to explain my trauma. Um, this, the onus is now on you, friend, to, to research and to read. And then I, I'm going to do my own research and I'm going to take action. 
But I've also, you know, just come to terms with the fact I don't have to continue to explain yeah. my trauma to you. Mm. And that's yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I've I've been convicted of the same thing because I've allowed just like life experiences to guide a lot of, of my beliefs and actions, which is good. But I've not dove into the historical evidence and facts of why things that are going on today that are um, the, the inequality that happens today, how that's so much tied to policies of the past. I mean, I've assumed it, but now I've got the facts. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've been convicted the same, like to read more and to look at um, the details of why we are where we are today. Uh, you know, and then I, I was, um, there's, a, there's a, a good friend of mine, his name's Michael. He's a pastor and a missionary in, in Baltimore, Maryland, African-American pastor and is part of my team. And he called me about three days after the protest had begun. And he just called me, hey man, how you doing? What's going on? And we talked and we talked a lot about, you know, his church and how they're responding, what our church is doing and stuff like that. But it was a soul care mm-hmm. call that he gave me. And I hung up from that and God convicted me after that. And it was, you should have been making the call to him. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, you know, it's not a problem till it's your problem, yeah. right? And it, it becomes my problem because my family, my church family, is so much, is so highly impacted by this disproportionately than I am personally. And I realized that I didn't live with, I should have been the one on the phone calling every one of my black and brown uh, team members and just say, how are you doing? Mm. Man, what can I do for you? I'm praying for you. That was wrong and stuff like that. And in fact, I mean, right after the phone, I got off the phone with Michael. Like, I just started calling all, all my guys and just, you know. And I called Michael. I'm like, man, thank you for doing that. And I apologize that I didn't do that for you. Mm. Um, so just trying to be sensitive to, to yeah. stuff like that, listening a lot, uh, being more educated. And, uh, and then, you know, me and my family, my daughter and I, my oldest daughter and I, we've had better conversations in the past uh probably two weeks than we have in the past 20 years. And a lot of it has been about our common belief of, you know, the issues and what's wrong. Mm. Now how we approach them, you know, different, but um, having conversations with my daughters and and, um, other people who call me there, white people call me because they know I'm part of a black church and like, all right, help me see this. Mm. And uh, yeah, you know, I've, so I want to try to take that burden away from you guys have had to explain it all the time. So just send them to me. There it is. There <laughs> it is. You guys can go for it. Well, uh, this is the last question. Um, what are y'all doing in the midst of protests and pandemics? Because we are in a unique season right now in life. There are going to be books written about this moment that we're in. Um, in the middle of a global pandemic, there's also this sense of a, a transformation and demand for justice and change unlike we've ever seen before. And yet it's important to uh, care for ourselves in the midst of that. It's important to just kind of take stock. So what are you doing in the midst of this moment? Yeah, I've had to lament Mm. like really ugly cry (laughs) out Mm. to the Lord of like, God, I, I think this ties back to the sense of like racism being demonic um, I've had friends who have confessed of like, I don't actually think that God cares about black people. Wow. And to know that there are black people that are walking around with that weight and, and to see where the world is right now, like I have had to 
go before the Lord and lament and cry and say, God, this is not how things are supposed to be. And I know that you know, and I know that you care, <sighs> so, but it just, it hurts. And I think like that honest lament to God, um, it has just, it, it has washed my soul um, and it has helped me, you know, to connect with God in a way that I would not have before because, you know, our savior was from a, you know, an oppressed minority group and he experienced the worst type of police brutality. So going to him with that, um, that has been a part of self-care for myself, like mm -hmm. that true lament. Also, I've had to come off of social media just mm -hmm. for... <laughs> like I don't need the constant stream of opinion. Yeah. That doesn't mean I'm disconnecting from the news. Like I'm still watching the news. I'm still being informed because I think it's very important also to be informed in this moment. Um, mm -hmm. But hearing everyone else's opinion has just had this like just cacophony of noise in my mind that I have just had to be like, I just, I need to disengage. Like yeah. I need to hear my own voice for a little bit. Um, so, you know, disengaging from, from social media and just reading, like I have had to, you know, go back and read black authors. Like, let me, I, I need some black excellence around mm -hmm. me. Like we, black people are okay. Right. Like we're good. We do things. We do. <laughs> like, we're smart. Okay. Let me, let me get some of that. Um, so I've been reading, you know, uh, Ernest Gaines and I had to go read some bell hooks and, you know, learn about black theologians. So just surrounding myself with with black excellence of like we're all right everything's okay <laughs> um i mean honestly i don't i don't feel it like you so there's a way because people i love and care for are deeply impacted so i i carry that weight for um my brothers and sisters that i love but you know i don't i don't worry about my daughters going out in the sense of what's their interactions with police going to be like. I don't worry about how are they going to be impacted by uh, trying to get a, a scholarship or admission into a college or, or things like that. So I don't have to privilege where I don't have, that's part of that white privilege where I don't have to um, think in the same way or respond in the same way. So, you know, we were talking about this, Russell, a little bit earlier today and same word you used, I do lament mm -hmm. some and, and, and grieve because people I love are hurting mm -hmm. and I see the pain and, and I want to do something, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not to be the big white savior, but at the same time, knowing that, man, I'm in a position where I can have influence and I've got to utilize that position. So that's the second thing I think of is activate. Like, what can we do? Yeah. What can my family do? And there's a part of me that celebrates because I believe that my daughters get to be a part, will live through the next great moment mm -hmm. that moves us so much further down the field when it comes to uh, racial reconciliation and the dismantling of systems and organizations mm -hmm. that keep people oppressed. So I celebrate that in mm -hmm. a sense because I believe that God is going to do something through this. I, this is different. You guys think it's different Absolutely. than the other time? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I can't imagine us, oh my gosh, and again, coming yeah. from a place of privilege, I can't imagine us going backwards in mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so I'm celebrating what God yeah. is going to do. And yeah. I hope that doesn't sound. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, the thing is um, that can't imagine us go backwards. I think it really goes back to what are we going to do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're having this conversation that, uh, uh, we have to commit to deciding 
you know, in the depth of our souls. God is for this. He's already made that clear in his word, Mm -hmm. right? That this is the true nature of of fast. The true nature of worship is to break the yoke of oppression. Um, We've seen that in our savior, as you said, who himself um, was a a victim of police brutality from an oppressed people group Mm -hmm. and came and identified with the suffering of his people. Um, And then also gives us a vision for a kingdom that's to come that will be run justly, fairly, and uh, with perfect righteousness and justice. Um, And in the meantime, we get to make that choice every day. Uh, But it's a choice that we have to also remember, it's a marathon and not a sprint. Mm -hmm. So we have to do the things to take care of ourselves, to go offline, to read some books, to have those conversations with family, to to unplug, that's necessary. Um, And and that's why we wanted to have this conversation, um, to kind of just, allow us to just kind of get gather together and really just process and not always take in information that's new, but to actually reflect on what we already heard, um, especially in this moment. Um, well, in that spirit of lament, as you talked about, and, uh, and hope, um, I love to pray right now and uh, kind of close this out. Um, I'll also share a little bit about Pray March Act, uh, which uh, Lourdes uh, mentioned before, because that's an incredible opportunity for all of us to stay involved in this goal to pray because it's the task is bigger than us to march in solidarity with the hurting and to act because that's what we're called to do to make a difference and make change. You can uh, go on the Facebook page, Pray March Act or PrayMarchAct.com will take you there. And that's something that as our church, we are mo- motivating and mobilizing people all over the country um, to be a part of this movement to uh, really push toward uh, change and especially to dismantle racism as anti-racist. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that you give us clarity about how uh, you feel about this current moment, how you feel about partiality, the sin of partiality, the injustices that we see around us. God, and also we thank you that uh, you give us clarity to know that we can come to you there if there's when there's stuff in us god ways in which we have embraced this uh these sinful ideas these doctrines of demons of these lies uh about race god uh lord will we you help us to uh do as we heard steve talk about and to be reflective and to to stab and to to just kill those parts of us would you help us to do as lord s you know referenced and referred to in the sense of just doing that heart examination and would you help us to to continue to stay locked in together to be committed to not just be indifferent and not just look for individual reconciliation but to trust you for systemic holistic change uh lord we commit this to you we thank you And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Um, Amen.